Isaiah chapter 61, where Paul was reading for us earlier. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, and to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, and to give them beauty for ashes, and the oil of joy for mourning, the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, and the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. As we make our way through the entire Bible, um, when you do that, you begin to see several patterns beginning to emerge. You're seeing things you never saw before. You're connecting dots that you've never seen before. One of the, the basic patterns that we're going to see this morning is spoken about in Hebrews 10.7, first mentioned in a prophecy in Genesis 3.15, but Hebrews 10.7, Behold, the volume of the book is written of me to do your will, O God. So the whole Bible, all the way from the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's all about Jesus, and you see that. Uh, just the life of Joseph, when you get to the last I think it's 37 to 50 in the book of, uh, of uh, Genesis, the life of Joseph. There's 110 places where you can identify Joseph as a type of Jesus. The second one that we notice as we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse is that we can find in one sentence sometimes a gap of time of prophecy that would be hundreds of years apart. And such is the case as we look into the word this morning. These verses would be partially fulfilled 700 years after Isaiah spoke them. So this is 700 years, Isaiah, before Jesus actually arrives on the scene. And these verses here, one through three, are speaking of him. And then we'll see that Jesus spoke these verses um, in the very first recorded message in the Bible. Uh, Secondly, we will see in the same verse a prophecy unfulfilled, even to this day, but I believe soon it will be fulfilled. It's been 2,700 years. This prophecy is yet future. It speaks of the Great Tribulation period. So with that much of a background, let's um, turn in the New Testament to Luke chapter 3 and look at Jesus' baptism. If you look at, well, God bless you. (laughs) In chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, it says, The heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased. So we have the baptism of Jesus. And I know the guys from Burbank um, are here to talk a little bit about Haiti. So I thought it would work in a Haiti story here. There's a book out that records the whole history of the Jesus movement. It wasn't just Southern California. A husband and wife team came out in 1970 and started on Brady Street. And um, it was called Powerhouse. And uh, we would go down there on Sundays in 71 and 72. It was there 
that, let's put up the picture of the guy that baptized me. This is of the gals just handing out literature. And you see the black guy over to the right? I was baptized on April 11th, 1972. I was baptized by that man. He happens to be in there. And I was baptized in water and filled with the Holy Spirit all at the same time. And that's quite a while ago. Now, why am I telling this story? Because I've been involved with many baptisms in Haiti. It's sort of a custom down there where everybody sort of does it during the same time. And that's a certain time during the spring of the year. So when we're down there, what I like to tell them, whether it's with Boston, I usually do it together. We'll have a Bible study. I said, I'm a white man baptizing black Haitian people. But I want you to know that I was baptized by a black man. Sort of breaks the ice a little bit. And that's really the guy that, he's a Baptist minister, that opened up his church because the building itself did not have a baptismal. So that's my story. I thought I'd work it in. There's a lot of people getting baptized in Carnet down in the river. Not the healthiest place to be baptized, by the way. <laughs> All right. If we go to chapter 4, um, we have verses 1 through 12. And I'm not going to get into it except to say that immediately after he was now 30 years old, Jesus is beginning his ministry. Um, he's fasting in the wilderness I mean, once you get to Jerusalem and you go down towards the Dead Sea, everything is wilderness. You'll see Bedouin tents, but you will not see any grass. And they actually have a place, a, a tourist place outside of Jericho that they call the Mount of Temptation. Well, we have no idea where Jesus was tempted. We just know it was a wilderness. And he fasted for 40 days. And he was tempted those 40 days um, by the devil. And um, that's verses 1 through 13. I'm not going to get into those, that part, but if you pick it up now in verse 14, this is going to be Jesus' first recorded teaching. So picking it up in verse 14, then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom. I like that. The Lord had a routine. He had a custom. I hope we all have a custom and that we prioritize our custom. What should our custom be? Wake up, devos with the Lord, right? Maybe wisdom for today, maybe some scriptures or some psalms. And then hopefully Wednesday night, um, Bible study, custom, we have a custom here. First, usually it's the first Sunday of the month we have communion, but because of the conference last week, we bumped it to this week. So we have our customs. The Lord had his. And his custom was to be in the synagogue. It would have been a Saturday on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he handed, was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book... He just didn't open it randomly and start reading. It says, he found the place where it is written. And it's Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, period. I'll come back to that period. 
Then he closed the book and he gave it to the, back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And he said at that moment, there's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61 and it's been fulfilled right in front of you right now. He rolls, he shuts it up, and it gives, and, and, and he hands it back to them. But I, what I want you to notice, not only is it a fulfillment, but I want you to notice where he stopped. But in order to do that, we have to go back to Isaiah chapter sixty-one. So let's go there and see where he stopped. He stopped in the middle of a sentence. He stopped after a comma. He did not finish the sentence. The sentence in verse, um, reading verse 2, part A, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's where Jesus closed the book. But there's a comma there, not a period. He never finished the sentence. The next part says, in the day of vengeance of our God. Why did he stop in the middle of the sentence? Well, he stopped because he could not say, today this is being fulfilled in your hearing, because the day of vengeance of our God is a reference to the great tribulation, and that still isn't fulfilled. That's yet future. I have entitled the morning's message, The Gaps. You have a gap of time here of uh, 700 years. It took Jesus fulfilled part A, and he closed the book. 700 years later, um, that was fulfilled. Let's turn to Revelation 6, verse 17. One thing I'll point out is we're in black letters. Just look at chapters 1, 2, and 3, because I'm going to make a reference to it earlier. And notice that they're all red letters. And beginning in chapter 4, if you have a red letter Bible, you'll find that no more red letters, at least for a while. In verse 17, the part where it says in the day of the vengeance of our God, when you read verse 17 and the sixth seal is open, it ends the chapter by saying, for the great day of his wrath has come, who is able to stand. So Jesus could not, he had to stop at the comma because he couldn't, otherwise he couldn't say, uh, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. This still has not been fulfilled, but like I said earlier, I believe, I believe we're very, very close to this period of time. From chapter 6 all the way to chapter 16, you have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, sometimes called the third judgments, and then you have the bowl judgments. They intensify as you work through the seven-year period of time, and um, it has different names. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, it's called Daniel's 70th week. It's referred to as the great indignation. Jesus in Matthew 24 said, there will never be a time like this on the planet. And unless I return bodily, there won't be any flesh that remains because there's never been a time like it before and there's never going to be a time like it afterwards. And yet Jesus we have a gap in the same sentence, part of it's fulfilled, and this has been now 2,700 years, and I believe the stage is being set for the Lord to come to take his church home. 
I think that's a good place for an amen on Mother's Day. Come on, you can do better than that. Amen. amen. That's better. Okay. Let's go to, let's go back to um, Luke, and um, let's look at the result of Jesus speaking in his hometown. The result of this was the, the conversation twenty one and twenty two, um, verse twenty two. So all bore witness to him, and they marvelled at his gracious words, which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, "Isn't this Joseph's boy?" And he said to them, "You will surely say the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Uh, whatever, whatever we have." heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. He said, assuredly, I say to you, a prophet is, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. So what we have is in his own land of Nazareth, his hometown, uh, they were saying, look, we know who you are. You're the carpenter's kid. And uh, you grew up here, and you, you're telling us um, that you're the Messiah. They just weren't buying it. Just flip over to Matthew chapter 10, real quick. Verse 34. In the church today, even in the Calvary Chapel movement, there's a move for unity, even at the cost of doctrine, or even for friendship. And there's really a misunderstanding that Jesus came to bring peace to this world. And if you look at verse 34, he says just the opposite. He says, I don't want you to think that. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, except on Mother's Day, and a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. And then he said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Gang, if his own family, um, turn to chapter 13. Chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 54. Do you know that Jesus had brothers and sisters? And we read that in Matthew 13, verse 54. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And he said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And is this not the carpenter's kid? Isn't his mother called Mary? I think Joseph might have been dead by this time because he's not mentioned. And his brothers, James, uh, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Sisters, plural. Uh, are they not all with us? Where then did this get man get these things? So they were offended at him because Jesus said to him, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and his own house. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I want to do a little sidetrack here because um, of <clears throat> the idea that Jesus had brothers and sisters, they did not believe on him um, until after the resurrection. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. There's, in Roman Catholicism, they have the doctrine. There's four dogmas of the Roman Catholic when it deals with, with Mary. 
I'm not going to get into the motherhood, the mother of God, or the immaculate conception that she was sinless, but the perpetual virginity is one of the four dogmas. According to Roman Catholic Mariology, Mary was always a virgin before, during, and after giving birth to Jesus. The Roman Catholic Encyclopedia of Theology admits that the formula of virginity before, in, and after giving birth did not come into use until the 7th century. That means for 700 years they didn't teach it. But it's part of, of the teaching of Roman Catholicism today. My question is, how can you be a virgin and have four brothers and at least two sisters? And the scriptures clearly teach that, and they did not uh, believe on him. So I began to think about this. My mind gets kind of weird sometimes. I thought, what must it have been like to grow up with a perfect older brother? I mean, most older brothers think they're perfect anyway, right? And, uh, I mean, every day he did nothing wrong. And he's got his brothers who are lying and stealing and, and doing all that. And they, they come home, and, and Jesus never told a lie. He never exaggerated. He only did what was good. And um, he grew up with that. I, and, and I try to think... How do you deal with this as a younger sibling, that your older brother is actually perfect? <laughs> anyway, back to the study. It not after, until after the resurrection, remember it says that Mary kept these things in her heart, who he, uh, who, who he was. Not until after the resurrection did they believe on him. But afterwards, it is James, one of his brothers mentioned here in verse 55, James, he became, not Peter, it was James who was the elder, the head elder in Jerusalem. When you look at the first um, problems that arose in Acts chapter 15, there was a big this about uh, certain Pharisees that became believers insisting, and the Gentiles, you, gotta, you guys got to get circumcised, you got to keep Sabbath, you got to keep the law. And Peter says, not so fast. We've seen the Lord do a lot of mighty works with these Gentiles, and so everybody's having this discussion, and then the conversation was going back and forth, but somebody had to have a final word. And when you read Acts 15, it was James. It says, James stood up and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to write these Gentiles a letter up in Antioch, and we're not going to lay any trips on them at all, or anything that, he says, by the way, you Pharisees that are trying to put it on in Gentiles, you couldn't do it yourself, so why are we putting this burden on them? And he says, just do things that you're not going to do naturally. And one of them was not to be sleeping around and uh, be involved with sexual sins. That's a, that's a no-brainer. The woman that the Lord, um, what that was caught in the act of adultery in John 8, they wanted to kill her. The Lord said, go ahead. But the first one that is without sin, he's the one that can throw the first stone. Well, that scattered the crowd pretty quick. He did not condone her sin. He said, go, oh, you're free. She called him Lord, by the way. And calling him Lord means there was a conversion somewhere, even without words being spoken, just like the thief on the cross. What was his sinner's prayer? Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He says, I will. You'll be with me today in paradise. No good works. And um, 
So James, just we find out, I also believe personally, and this is not without debate, that he is the author of the book of James. So all that to say this. Here it is, Mother's Day, and we're going to be getting together with family and friends. Everybody here has been sharing with somebody. Everybody here is praying for somebody. Amen on that one? We are. And um, I want to give you a little bit of encouragement here, especially when it comes to family. If you've been sharing faithfully with your family and friends, and they're not buying it, and saying, you're no different. You, we, we know you. We grew up with you. Now you tell me you're a completely different person. Uh, they might not buy it right away, but as they watch you, and believe me, they are watching, right? As they watch you, they will see that your life is different. And it's going to cause them, uh, like in the Lord's case, when Jesus actually rose from the grave again, then they all believed on him. And James became a powerful pillar in the early church. My word of encouragement, just keep praying. Keep praying for them. Don't stop. Hopefully, eventually, they will come around. Amen? Amen. That's, that's what we're, we're um, wanting to be light and salt too. But let's go back to Luke. That might not always be the case. There may, let's read verses 28 and 29. It says, Then all those in a synagogue that heard these things were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill of which the city was built, that they might throw him over the cliff. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to throw him over a cliff. And there's probably some of your family members that would love to throw you over a cliff if they had the chance. I'm actually going to show you where I think this took place. This is called the precipice. And I'm going to tie this in. This is, this is Nazareth. And this is the first part of it. And we'll be there in November. But what's interesting, and Chris Quintana pointed this out when he was talking about being um, where Elijah was on Mount Carmel and the view that he had of, of the Valley of Megiddo. Well, that's on the Mediterranean. If you go straight across from where they are, um, this is what you will see. This is what Jesus looked at every day of his life growing up. You know what that is? That's the Valley of Armageddon. He grew up every day knowing he already fulfilled John 4 the first, but knowing full well that this would be the place where the second part of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, in the day of vengeance of our God, would be accomplished and would be fulfilled. It's absolutely gorgeous. Every military general who's ever seen it said it is ideal and perfect for warfare. So the Lord grew up with this. Turn to me to Revelation chapter 16, where it talks about, I mentioned earlier that The tribulation period begins in chapter 6. It ends in chapter 16, verse 21. But I'm interested in the sixth bowl, and that we have to pick that up in verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up, so that the ways of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of their mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. 
for they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to battle for the great day of our God. Stop, pause, because now all of a sudden, remember I said there's no red letters between 6 and 16? There's one verse, and it's speaking to the church. And in the middle, right before the seventh and final bowl, we have stop. I know this stuff sounds over the top. That's not going to rain for three and a half years, and the two prophets physically rise into heaven and all these plagues. But he, the Lord speaks at this time. He says, behold, I am coming. I'm going to read that again. Behold, I am coming. As a thief, and blessed is he who is watching and keeps his garment lest he is naked that they see his shame. And he goes back to the thought in verse 14. And they gathered them together in the place in the Hebrew called arm again and um, this now when we get to verse 21 we now have uh, the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61 verse 2 all of it It took 700 years for the first part to be fulfilled it'll take at least 2700 that's 2700 years ago that that happened but so that we don't doubt it the Lord throws verse 15 in there, and it's in red letters, and it's sort of a sit up, wake up, look up, <laughs> your redemption's drawing nigh. All right, um, real quickly, uh, let me just throw a couple more at you this morning. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 26 and 27. Of course, this is the, the famous chapter that deals with Gabriel interrupting Daniel's prayer. The 70 years were up. He's in Babylon. He knows it's time to go home, so he prays. Lord, when can we go home? That's the first 19 verses. And then in verses 24, it gives us what is God is going to do with the nation of Israel. And it's important that you, you understand that this is for your people and the holy city. This is not Gentile stuff. This is Jewish stuff. And um, 20, 25 gives us the, um, the very day that the Messiah would come. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah will be that 483 years or 69 weeks or 177,880 days. And on Palm Sunday, 32 AD, Jesus allowed this passage to be fulfilled right to the very day and then it says that would have been on on a Sunday verse 26 and then after the 62 weeks Messiah will be cut off now we were here a couple weeks ago and the Hebrew word there is karat it actually means to be executed he's going to be executed but not for himself and the people of the prince who is to come all right now we have a gap right here um, the, the Messiah is going to be executed and then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, that was the Romans. And that happened 38 years after that first Palm Sunday or, or when Jesus was executed. 38 years later, the Romans came in and we have a gap of 38 years in this one verse right here. 
And at the end, it will be with a flood. And till the end of war, desolations are determined. Uh, The Jews left Jerusalem in 70 AD, and they didn't come back again until the early 1900s, and they became a nation. By the way, next Wednesday night will be the 68th, I think, anniversary of uh, when David Ben-Gurion got up and said, I declare this the state of Israel. First time since 70 AD that they're back in the land. And um, then they, in verse 27, we have a gap. And it says, then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. All right, 69 weeks are fulfilled. He still owes Israel one week. He owes them seven years. Isn't it interesting that Revelation 6 through 16 is a seven-year period of time? And it's so repetitive, and they want us to know it so much, they keep using different symbols and terminology to show us it's seven years. Uh, Sometimes it's 42 months. Sometimes it's 1,260 days. Sometimes it's time, times, and half a times, three and a half. Um, Or just playing three and a half years. Jesus makes a distinction of this. He says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, whoever reads, let him understand. In the middle of the week, something's going to happen. And that's verse 27. This has not been fulfilled yet. So then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. He is who? Well, the people of the prince who will come. He's got to be from the Roman Empire. So I don't buy this um, Antichrist being a a Syrian thing at all. Um, I don't think they have a very good grasp of Daniel 9 at all. But in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. In order for that to happen, there has to be a temple. And uh, they have to reinstitute temple worship. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who is makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined. Dwight, why are we here? I just want to show you another place in the Bible where there's a gap. And this gap between verse 26 and 27 um, is, a, is at least 2,000 years ago that that took place. Well, it makes me think if there's a covenant that's going to be made between the Antichrist and the Jewish people, to me the question is simply this. Are there religious rabbis today in Israel who are looking for the Messiah? I'm glad you asked that question, by the way. I'm going to put something on the screen. This is just recent within the last week. And what you have here, this is Rabbi Haim Kineski, has issued a call for Jews to move to Israel in preparation for the imminent arrival of the Messiah. Rabbi Haim, a leading authority in mainstream ultra-Orthodox Judaism, has been giving clear and unequivocal messages recently that the coming of the Messiah is imminent. He is urging Jews to make what's called aleah as soon as possible. Aleah the Hebrew word for going up refers to immigration to Israel, which uh, is seen as a highly spiritual action that can help herald 
and the coming of the Messiah. (laughs) How late is it? And uh, the rabbi goes on to say that the Messiah should be arriving in the very near future. He quoted the Talmud again in saying, in the year after Shemitah, the son of David will come. The year after the Shemitah on the Jewish calendar ends this October, so until then, messianic expectations will be running high in Israel. Talk about being set up. The Bible clearly says that the Antichrist is the one who breaks the covenant. Jesus calls it the abomination of desolation, as Daniel did. And now they're primed and ready to go, waiting for their Messiah. When we go to the Temple Mount Institute with Rabbi Richmond, who started it many, many years ago. I've known him for over 30 years. And um, uh, how will you know when the Messiah comes? Because he will give us permission to build the temple. And that's the covenant. Part, evidently, part of the deal is when the covenant is made that will be broken in the middle, uh, who they think is their Messiah is none other than the Antichrist. Wow. All right, let me just give you one more and we'll, we'll call it. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 9. Oh, the complexity and the wonder of the word of God. Zechariah 9.9 9 would have been fulfilled along with Psalm 118 on what we call Palm Sunday. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. And it's quoted here, and then we have verse 10, and it says, And I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horses from Jerusalem. The battle will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Clearly, This is a kingdom age prophecy. In verse 9, that was fulfilled along with Psalm 118, where it says, Hosanna, Hosanna, this is the day. Save now, Lord. And um, as they were singing that, the, the religious Pharisees got upset. And they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They actually think you are the Messiah. And he says, you can't do that. Why? He says, because if they don't say something, then the very rocks are going to shout. And then he goes from this, talk about a roller coaster ride of emotion. He goes from this worship, Hosanna, save now. They were hailing him as the Messiah. And then it says, he began to weep. And he said, oh, if you'd only known, Israel, that this was, this was the day. This was your day that was made for your peace, but now you're going to miss it. And because you missed it, this is what's going to happen. Your enemies are going to come around you. They're going to lay siege to your city. They're going to destroy the temple. There's not going to be one stone left upon another. And then he says, because you did not know the time. You did not know the time of my coming. Implying what? That we're supposed to know. The religious teacher should have been saying, hmm, uh, uh, on a donkey that's never been ridden before, Um, we should know that the Messiah is coming instead of preparing the people to to look and to watch, which is what the Lord always tells us to do. Here we have in Zechariah 9, that's been fulfilled. 
Amen? On Palm Sunday. It gives me every confidence to believe that our Lord, when he comes again, is going to do exactly what he said. He's going to establish his kingdom, and he will rule uh, from sea to sea and from the ends of the earth. Turn back, and we'll close with that little red-lettered verse in Revelation 16, because it's for you and I. We're not going through the tribulation. There are those that like to debate it and argue about the timing of the whole thing, and they want to make a big theological discussion out of it. To me, it's not theology. It's not doctrine that we're pre-trib in our view of the rapture of the church. To me, it has everything to do with the nature and character of the God I love and serve. Because if I'm the bride of Christ, I don't want to go to the tribulation for my honeymoon. How about you? See, it's more of an issue of God's nature. Not the timing and people get together and that's all they want to talk about. Mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, pre-trib. Well, I'm pre-trib. I don't even know eat post-toasties. I don't like them, won't go there. Any of that. That was a joke. You're supposed to laugh at that one. But to me, it's, it's the very nature. He says, come and learn of me. I'm lowly and meek in heart. And uh, you're going to find rest and peace for your souls. So if you don't know the Lord this morning, know that he loves you, that he does have a plan for you. It isn't always an easy one. As a matter of fact, he says you have to pick up your cross daily and, and, and follow me. Matter of fact, a lot of your family members might want to push you off the cliff. <laughs> might want to not have anything to do with you. And some of you are in that place right now. Be comforted. If it happened to our Lord, didn't he say it was going to happen to you too? And it will. So we read this one verse in the middle, right before the end of the Great Tribulation. Behold, I am coming. I'm going to leave you that thought today. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who is watching. Are you watching? They weren't the first time around. And keeps his garment lest he walks naked and sees his shame. What does that mean? It means don't quit. Don't give up. I don't care how hard it is. I don't care what you're going through. Just keep on pressing on. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we make our way through Isaiah. We see this truth, Lord, that the volume of the book really is all about you. And I do thank you that you are the way you are. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You change not. That you're lowly and, and humble. But Lord, when you come back a second time, it's not going to be as a suffering servant but a strong warrior on a white steed. And you will complete your word, and you will complete Isaiah 61, the second half, the day of vengeance of our God. Lord, I pray this morning on Mother's Day that you would bless the moms and go before the rest of our week. In Jesus' name, amen.